live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And good evening and welcome to the show. This is Yona and we are on the road to recovery. I'm in the studio with my friend Sophia and Corey is also making sure everything goes smoothly. So we've got our, our A-team in place to make sure that we can take your calls at 416-870-6400 or 888 talk You can text me anytime as well, 647 647- or eight eight zero zero eight six. Want to hear from you? So this was supposed to be. So next week, this coming Thursday, the twenty third of this month, was supposed to be the uh, day that I go for um, uh, restorative back surgery, uh, where they're doing a mastectomy on L five, L four, L five, and L five S one. Anyway, so make a long story short. I'll try to get through the story as quickly as I can and and carry on here. But here's the question I want to ask you. Um, you know, I, I got very anxious about my surgery, and 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 would you think that anxiety is something that would keep someone from surgery? So that's the question. Would your anxiety, you think, keep you from having the surgery that you want? Four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred, or the surgery that you need? So anyway, it turns out like this. So about four and a half years ago, I read an article about a particular surgeon who was doing this minimally evasive, laparoscopic, small tools, little scars, that kind of stuff, surgery on lower backs. Uh, took me a while to get to him because his practice was closed. I eventually was able to get some uh, connections through people I knew in the hospital system, and they were able to get me in front of him very quickly. <clears throat> and we began the discussion of surgery, and that was a couple of years ago. And since then, um, I've been moving the surgical date every you know number of months as the pandemic played itself out. Hospitals were shutting down elective surgeries anyway. Anyway, so it came, it, 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 the rubber hit the road um, last Tuesday. This past Tuesday, my wife and I went to meet with the surgeon and prepare for the surgery. Now, at this point, I had sent a million messages. You know, I, I, what about this and what about that? I don't want a catheter. I don't want to use opioids. And how long until I can get up and, and, and out and how long? And all kinds of questions, which were a clear indication to the doctor, who is a superstar, that I was having issues around the surgery. So he wanted to meet me face to face and I wanted to meet with him as well. Um, but it almost turned out that he was going to fire me because my anxiety was through the roof and he recognized it. And basically, you know, every time he'd start explaining something to me, I would interrupt and he would eventually he stopped and he said, look, and, and the guy managed me the same as I would manage a patient who called me and had all the answers. You know, I checked it out on, on, on the internet or I checked it out on Google and I found out this and I spoke to another doctor about this. And, you know, I was constantly sending messages from doctors I had met on the golf course or around the job. You know, and, you know, this guy suggested I do this. What do you think? What is anyway, clearly second guessing the guy who's the best in the world at what he does. Long and the short of it is <clears throat> that, um, we decided to put the, to, to put the, the surgery off. But the, the, you know, the, one of the reasons he suggested I put the surgery off is levels of anxiety. Because with levels of anxiety, um, you have to be, you have to take, you know, pay attention to, uh, the patient's recovery. So my anxiety would have, the way it was in check at the time, would have clearly, as I know it, and I, I, I agree with him, would have worked out to be a situation where I wasn't happy. You know, I was going to have pain where I shouldn't have, and this wasn't right, and that wasn't right. And because what I expected in terms of this simple, minimally evasive, little, to- little tools, small scars, 
ends up being a five-hour surgery, four to five-hour surgery, and lots and lots of recovery, like several months of recovery. I prepared four or five days of recovery. I had my practice put on hold. I had people stepping in in case my patients had a problem. The other businesses that were involved in were are, are well managed. So I, I had you know four or five days, three, four or five days, including a couple of them were religious holidays. I could jump on the back of those, and I was in in my mind. I'm in and out. You know, I'm in and out of the hospital in three, four days, and maybe four or five days to get myself together so that I can sit up and do my video therapy and do my broadcasting and everything else that I do. Uh uh-uh. uh says the doctor, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt for a while, and you might not be able to sit down for long. So I got to make choices because the choice I made was I could potentially get rid of my bat, my leg pain right away, which is where my pain is. They're numb and they hurt all the time when I walk. I could probably get rid of the leg pain pretty much guaranteed according to the type of issue I have and the type of surgery he does. But I could have lower back pain like such that I couldn't sit for long periods of time for months. So my anxiety says to me, my my logic says to me, this isn't for me right now. So I'm not having surgery this Thursday, thankfully. Um, I wasn't ready. He wasn't ready for me in terms of whether I was going to be a good patient or not. But I got to say kudos to my uh, to my surgeon, um, and um, he is a rock star. Managed me like a true professional. If I was talking to him the way he, if I would if if I was him talking to him the way that I did. Um, I, I would have told him, you know what, I can't help you find another surgeon, but he kept me on and we've agreed that we're just going to take a little pass. So I'm going to get my back into shape. I've going to do some serious training and lose some weight, going to get my core in line. I'm going to use the six months to see if I can get without, get to a point where I don't need the surgery. But, you know, we're finding that, you know, if you're looking at hospitals, so the question really was, nobody called in, but question is, can anxiety keep you from having surgery? The answer is absolutely yes. If your doctor has a brain and he knows what's going on, he's going to realize that the anxiety issues surrounding uh, someone going through surgery is going to have a direct impact on how they're going to be in recovery. And no one wants a pain in the butt guy like me calling every five minutes, not expecting to have crazy pain. Plus, there's like 860 people have died of COVID in hospital outbreaks recently. Um, a lot of people are dying and getting sick in hospitals uh, who came in without COVID and are getting it in the hospital. Um, there's all kinds of issues about that. and People are talking about that. Uh, unlike with long-term care, uh, Ontario doesn't publish a detailed list of hospital outbreaks on a facility-by-facility facility basis. So it's impossible for someone to really keep in-depth information. Uh, but we know at least 500 deaths in Ontario hospital outbreaks since June of 2021. 500 deaths in hospital Ontario hospital outbreaks through late June 2021, a finding that revealed hundreds of more patients dying after catching COVID while in the hospital. Public Health Unit reports finds Ontario hospital outbreaks have tended or tended to be larger and longer lasting than reported outbreaks in long-term care. It, it, it's a problem. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why I chose not to, primarily because I wasn't ready. You know, the name of this segment should really be you've got a choice. You know, you're, you're able to make your choices because you are. So if you can make choices, make them and make the right ones for you. You know, I really want to get my back better. I really want to feel better. But it sounds to me like I'm going to have a whole bunch of hurt first. And I just wasn't ready for it. I'm just not ready for it. I'm not ready to go under the knife on uh, on Thursday. And like my doctor said to me, once you're, li- once you're lying down, this is happening. So um, kudos to my, uh, to my surgeon. I hope he's uh, paying attention and uh, listening to the show. Uh, but uh, 
you know, you got to speak for yourself. And, and fortunately, you know, I had a guy who could recognize immediately by the kinds of questions I was asking and, you know, the way I was engaging with his staff about what I will have and I won't have, and I'm not going to have opioids. I'm not going to like, listen to me telling him how this thing should go. Anyway, I appreciate you listening. I'm glad I made the choice. So uh, we won't have a recorded segment next week. We'll have me live again, thankfully. And uh, yeah, I'm feeling really good about it. I'm going to get into shape and see if I can beat this thing without going under the knife. When we come back, we're going to talk about warnings uh, being issued around the country, um, talking about hospitals and talking about, you know, people protesting, nurses and silent people doing, you know, vigilant people talking about not, you know, anti-vaxxers and so on. So when we come back, we're going to talk about that. We want to hear from you, 416-870-6400. Have you had enough of the protests? I want to hear from you. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. We were the heroes once, and now we're being villainized as the people. Personally, people have told me that I am going to kill people when I was saving people's lives a year ago. The TTC also has a mandatory policy. The transit agency saying vaccination is a precondition to employment. The Toronto Police Service is also making it mandatory, although it says implementation of its policy will be under development following Monday evening's deadline for employee disclosures. The Toronto Police Association, which represents unionized members, declined an interview. In a statement, it says members should have a choice over vaccinations and it will continue to work with the TPS over the policy. This is very, very demoralizing to our frontline healthcare workers who've been working flat out to save people's lives for the last 18 months. And so I think it's just very unfortunate that this is happening with the protesters and uh, we would please ask them to to think about the great work that our frontline healthcare workers are doing and and uh, and please um, stop these protests because they're uh, really um, very discouraging to our frontline healthcare workers okay so there we get some clips uh, that our team put together and thank you they did a fabulous job the, the question i'm asking and the board is open for you to call in right now are you sick and tired of this protesting because we got protesting on two sides now now we have frontline canadian frontline nurses posting uh, notices of silent vigils um, because they're complaining, they're going to be complaining, and we'll get through this in a second, about what the government's doing or not doing to protect themselves and protect others. It's all about policy. I want to hear from you, 416-870-6400 or 888-225-TALK, which is 8255. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you think about these protests. You're listening to Yona, and you are on the road to recovery. So warnings issued ahead of expected protests at hospitals across Canada. <clears throat> So an organization calling itself Canadian Frontline Nurses Protests uh, posted notice of silent vigils. And uh, locations include the Winnipeg Health, Cent- Health Sciences Centre, Toronto Hospital, uh, Toronto General Hospital, Queen Elizabeth uh, Two Health Sciences Centre in Halifax and several others. Nurses prote- uh, protests set to take place outside Royal Alexandra Hospital, also in M- Edmonton. And the organizers say that they want to take a stand against what they call tyrannical measures and government overreach. Not sure what that means. Tyrannical measures and government overreach. I mean, it's all, government's always overreaching, so it's nothing new, right? <clears throat> Adding that they're not encouraging nurses to walk out on their shifts or abandon patients at all. <clears throat> the University Health Network said healthcare workers 
have been caring for COVID-19 patients for over 18 months, despite tons of risks to themselves and their families. I know a bunch of docs and a bunch of people working in the system, primarily from my work and doing crisis stuff and being in the hospitals, plus people I just know, they're, 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 at, they're, they're getting close to the end of their pin. Like they're just getting close to the end of their, at the end of their, their rope in terms of being able to manage this stuff. Vaccinations offer the best chance of preventing hospitalizations uh, and admissions to ICUs and ventilations uh, to preserve life, the, hot work, the hospital network said in a statement. Uh, to see protests uh, in front of hospitals demoralizing for all workers, but particularly for staff who've cared for the people dying of COVID, often without all of their family. So here's the deal. The deal that there are people outside protesting, right, against doctors and so on. Now the doctors and, well, now the nurses are protesting in the way that the government is handling things. The Registered Nurses Association of Ontario and the Medical Ontario Medical Association issued a statement strongly condemning the planned disruptions and calling for designated safe zones and healthcare facilities to protect staff and patients, a proposal that the New Democrats also floated. Nurses, doctors, and other healthcare workers have been working around the clock on the front lines, uh, they cannot and must not be distracted or worse, discouraged by protests at the doorstep of their workplaces. Experts go on to say, uh, no healthcare worker, um, no patient, no one seeking healthcare should in any way be limited or have a barrier to getting the care that they need. He said while campaigning, um, outside of another hospital. Past protests have centered on both public health measures and such that the nurses and doctors think aren't in play and should be. So the, the question is, are you sick and tired of the protests? You know, nurses are standing up now, um, supported by medical associations, uh, standing up for the mistreatment um, uh, that they're getting and, and the lack of support, perhaps, that they're getting actually on the job. Um, but here we have another side of the protesting, you know, equation. So we have nurses and medical people protesting against, or, or certainly, you know, standing up against um, measures being taken to protect everybody. The sad reality is that they're saving the lives of people who would otherwise be on the front lines protesting as anti-vaxxers because they're now causing moral injury to hospital workers and global, uh, according to global, uh, our news partner, our, our, um, according to news, Global News CA, who's our, our news partner. An emergency room nurse, uh, Jamie Gallagher, she recalls the emotional toll of a verbal attack she got from a, from a person wearing while she was wearing her scrubs on her way home, went into a grocery store after a 14-hour, 15-hour day, and she was still red-eyed from crying from the past two hours, and she just swore, swore at me, Gallagher said, the protests outside Royal Inland Hospital in Kamloops. I just broke down in tears, put my carton of milk down, and just left the grocery store. Experts are concerned over the moral injury among healthcare workers and suddenly targeted after several provinces have declared this an issue. It's a problem. So anti-vaxxers are now protesting in front of hospitals, demoralizing nurses and doctors, making it difficult for people to actually get into the hospitals to get the help they need. And then what happens? They turn around and a week later, one of those people in that, in that group, at least one of those people in that group, holding signs and screaming and yelling, is going to end up in a merge, taking a bed from someone who probably needs it and can't have it because someone without being vaccinated caught COVID in a crowd because they protest in crowds without masks on. Just makes It makes no sense. Uh, another nurse goes on to say she spent two extra hours at work to avoid protesters on the same day last week when hospitals in British Columbia and elsewhere in Canada were grappling with rallies. We're making some life-and-death decisions around bed allocations. On that particular day, we had two young patients in our department who were waiting for ICU beds for two days. 
but they couldn't get them because the ICU was full of unvaccinated COVID patients. So it's not just you that you're deciding not to vaccinate and, and deciding, you know, not to, to worry about catching COVID, but it's what you're doing to others. 416-870-6400. I'm not suggesting everyone needs to, t- to, to be vaccinated, but I'm suggesting everybody needs to respect those that have been. Staff at the hospital is already reeling from treatments, uh, treating seriously unvaccinated mother in their 30s. She goes on to say she deteriorated so quickly and, quite, and you know, she was worried about what's going to happen to her kids. It's just a sad reality for, you know, um, people to have to work in an environment where they're being made to feel like they're garbage. You know, this, this term of moral injury, you know, it goes on. It's a military term, actually. It talks about the plight of soldiers experiencing an extreme violation of their moral values. Nurses and doctors, the anger of many healthcare professionals has turned to this moral outrage because that's really what it's about. Virtually everyone in healthcare w- would want to help another person. That's what they do, right? But when they get the protesters actually telling them they're harmful, they're horrible human beings and swearing at them, it's very distressing. And that distress makes it very difficult for them to go and do their job. I guess another good reason why I'm not having surgery. I'm not sure that the staff, although they're all superstars, you know, as far as I'm concerned, and they, they can really rise above this for the most part. But what I'm talking about here is, you know, you can't dump on the people who you're going to eventually need to go to to save your life. You know, I saw a couple of TV shows years ago, you know, uh, hospital-type setting TV shows, you know, one of those uh, Chicago ones or something. And I remember there was a shooter outside who was holding a nurse and a doctor hostage, and they finally uh, they finally were able to get the nurse and the doctor released, but they ended up, the police ended up shooting uh, the the, um, the the perpetrator. He ended up having life, you know, life uh, um, altering or, or life saving uh, surgery in that same surgical unit, you know, and you could hear doctors, again, it's a TV show, but you can hear doctors talking in the background about whether they really want to save this guy or not. Like he just, you know, he just held his, their two colleagues and was threatening to kill people and so on and so forth. But the protests are demoralizing. If there's a lack of common decency to put protesters in, in, you know, to protest in front of hospitals where people have to do their work, right? It's delaying people who are trying to get the care that they deserve uh, this is absolutely maddening and brings out all kinds of emotions, according to all of the experts. It's just very difficult to work in an environment where people don't like you because of something that has nothing to do with you. You know, you're in there saving lives and you're, you know, the, the people on the front on the front lines aren't making healthcare decisions. God only knows we hope that they would. If they would, maybe we'd be in a better better position than we are today. So there needs to be some national mental health strategy for doctors, frankly, and nurses dealing with all the fallout of this. We're going to need care for all kinds of people when it comes to mental health. Never before has the mental health of a workforce, especially among physicians, especially amongst emergency and ICU physicians, uh, been really at the forefront like it is now. We all think that they're rock stars and they're superstars and they can withstand anything, but they can't. Dump on them long enough, then they're going to throw their gloves down and go, I'm going home. And then we're all in a really, really bad place. Anyway, speaking of being in a really bad place, when we come back, well, we're going to talk about what's going on at University of Western Ontario, uh, kind of an Ivy League Canadian school, if you ask me. It was one of those that kids always had a hard time getting into, one of the really uh, better facilities in terms of their stance and status amongst uh, people who graduate and get jobs. But it's a mess, and when we come back, we're going to talk about that. You can join in as well, 416-870-6400, Yonabud, 640, Toronto. 
You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the Road to Recovery. This is Yona, and thank you for joining me here. Uh, before we carry on to the next segment, we have Darshan, Darshan from Mississauga. Uh, Darshan, thank you for joining us and uh, for listening to the show. What's up? Hey, Yona. Thank you for having me. You know, uh, it's just unfortunate and despicable, you know, how these people are behaving. Getting vaccinated or not should be a, is a personal choice, but targeting people for providing life-saving services is just despicable and you know i don't know if the government can justin trudeau can make it mandatory or not i don't know when he's going to do that since he's within the elections but i guess what the simplest solution could be you know if these anti-vaxxers get covid which they're eventually going to get most of them they should get free medical uh, facilities these guys. Yeah, that, that that's that's the part of you calling in that I really was interested in. Is I think what your what your message was to our screener uh, was that people who are unvaxed uh, should not get free healthcare if they catch COVID. That's an interesting concept. I don't know if it's something we could you can actually pull off, but it's I like you know there's something about it, man, that I like. Um, I just don't you know I'm not practically speaking. I'm not sure how you make that work, but basically you're going to leave them off to to die on their own otherwise. So I'm not sure that that. That works, but these people are ninety percent of them are going to get vaccinated. It's just because they know eventually they can, the, the the system will save them. That's why they have exactly. the freedom. Exactly. And exactly. Once they don't have it, they won't question the government's overreach in making it, those decisions for them. Well, you know what? It's a great call, and I appreciate you letting me know and or coming and joining us tonight. Uh, and I'm glad you're listening. Uh, but that's a that's really good thinking, and I appreciate it. And and I'm kind of with you. You know, it's despicable and disgusting, and we shouldn't have it. But uh, thanks, my brother. Appreciate you calling. Uh, we're gonna just uh, listen to a clip here. Um, we're talking about next the next subject here. We're talking about the sex assault issue at Western University, one of the finer universities in Canada. Um, just have a listen. I can't emphasize enough that gender-based violence and sexual assault will never be tolerated at Western. We are deeply concerned and troubled by what we're seeing on social media and are working very hard to confirm and clarify that information. The safety and welfare of our students is of utmost importance. It's, it's, it's our priority and we have been doing everything uh, that we can to address these uh, these social media sort of investigations by ensuring that we are canvassing our residences for information. We are increasing security and guest registration at our residence buildings to ensure that we have an added level of security. And we have gender-based violence and survivor support professionals who are available for these students. Well, there you have it. That's uh, one of the uh, senior people at the uh, VP of Operations and Finance at Western University. You know, we're going to look into it. We're going to do this. We're going to keep that. Listen, let's be honest. Sexual assault on university campuses, especially during Frosh Week, is nothing new. It's as ugly today as it was then, and it will continue to be ugly. And monitoring, you know, students and such and providing a little bit more security and such is, you know, it's probably not a horrible a horrible start to something. But what's really important here is to understand that people aren't going to come. You know, I've worked with, with many uh, victims of uh, sexual violence and uh, victims of uh, human trafficking and so on in my career. Um, and, you know, they all have to say the same thing. They never felt safe going to someone to tell them what was going on. 
they didn't feel safe reaching out to some authority, uh, whoever that might be, or, or certain family members even in certain cases, uh, to tell them what was going on. And, that, and then the perpetrator continues, the bad guy continues to do what they do, and, and everybody loses. So students at, 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 at Western University aren't going to go, you know, monitor them all you want, but if they don't feel safe in going to the administration about stuff that's going on, they're not going to report it. And more sexual assaults, as we know, aren't reported because people don't want to go through the horrific humiliation and cross-examinations. And, you know, if, you know, if you happen to be a female and you happen to be wearing, you know, party clothing that's perhaps, you know, a little more um, uh, revealing than others, um, that's not an invitation to sexual activity. And that doesn't mean you can touch me. That mean, doesn't mean you can do anything to me. It's not allowed just because of what you're wearing. Right. So the problem here is the systemic issue around uh, whether the, the campus is a safe place to go. Students actually walked out of class at Western at noon on Friday to, to they were protesting 30 sexual assaults reported at, a, at one residence. OK, so it was frosh week. Everyone's hammered. Everyone's getting high. People are having fun. They're giggling. They're joyful. They're this and that. You know, what looks like a, you know, what looks like a, a simple fall on some guy's shoulder because you're hammered and you think he's safe turns out to be, you know, dragged out into a parking lot and, and sexually assaulted or something like that. So in response to sexual violence committed against members of Western community, the walkout is to stand with survivors and demand change. So it's a culture of, mis of misogyny. That's, that's what the students are claiming. They're claiming the culture and the homophobia and all kinds of underlying issues around uh, sexual choices, sexual identification. Um, students marched against the marching, carrying signs saying enough is enough. How many more? They don't feel safe, right? They're not just at Western, at every university in the country. They just may not be in the, in the news right now. And Western, amongst other schools, is one of the finer universities you can send your kid, from a, certainly from a stats perspective in terms of the statistics. So the school announced it's launching a new safe student safety action plan. What do you mean new? Sexual assault on campus has been around forever. It's bugging you as much as it's bugging me. 416-870-6400 or 888-225-TALK if you're calling long distance. So the university is putting together what they call a task force on sexual violence and student safety. It, it's, you know, create a campus culture where these unacceptable actions are prevented. Like seriously, all of a sudden now. But the problem is this stuff gets dealt with in the beginning, like it gets dealt with when stuff comes out and it's newsworthy. Everyone's talking about, you know, um, what's going on and that, uh, you know, the news is talking about the sexual assault at, at the school and so on. Just like when we had issues at, uh, at uh, St. Mike's College when the kids uh, hazed some kid in the locker room and sexually assaulted him with a broom. I mean, those kids are now, you know, coming to trial and getting sentenced. None of them really with any horrific uh, sentence to really – uh, look at it as a deterrent as far as I'm concerned, not from where I'm coming from. So the students questioned how Western was handling the allegations, and it was a, um, they immediately prepare and implement a cohesive and mandatory gender-based and sexual violence education training module. They want everyone on campus to be trained with this new training module. I love it. A little late, though, but never too late, I suppose, right? The action plan will increase safety and security on campus. They're going to introduce new security measures, hiring new special constables, enhancing security patrols, implementing mandatory in-person sexual violence awareness, and preventing and prevention training for all students in the residence. Like, it's a university campus. If you're not safe where, 
there, where are you going to be? And I'll tell you, there's a lot of moms and dads out there right now that can't get to London fast enough to grab their kids and bring them home. But you know what? You gotta send, where are you going to send them to? Send them to York, send them to U of T, send them to, to uh, one, of the, you know, one of the colleges in, in Halifax, send them to Queens, Montreal. The, it, campus settings are campus settings. And as long as you've got fraternity-type thinking and as long as you've got those kind of party-type situations going on where you've got really unregulated dormitories, but they're supposed to be regulated, but they're not, the parties are excessive and out of control, the amount of drug use is excessive and out of control, it's a problem. So they're trying to put together a strike force. Anyway, Western University President Alan Shepard said this, we clearly have a culture problem that we need to address. We let our students and our families down. Like, no kidding. I don't know how you come back from this. Like, what do you do? All the task force in the world aren't going to make a difference. What we need to do is we need to understand that there is an inequality on campus. And the, and, it, and there are people who are losing their lives. There was a death at the same university, by the way, of, of a young man. And we're not sure what the motivation is, but one is believed that it's you know related to some sexual orientation or thoughts of sexual orientation or something. I don't know that to be a fact, but that's what we're hearing. So I don't know what you do, but what you don't do is you don't let, you don't go out on the campus by yourself. You make sure that you have yourself a buddy, right? Um, and, you know, it's, it's a problem because, you know, you can't, if you can't feel comfortable going to school, what do you do next? You know, off campus somewhere, some other university in some other country? I don't think so. I don't think it's going to work. I think what you got to do is you got to protect yourself. If you're a student and if you're a parent, you got to make sure your kids are off to school and they're protected. They know about things like, you know, pepper spray or know about get some little bit of uh, some, uh, some, um, you know, some form of hand-to-hand combat training, some kind of defensive training. Lots of options. Don't rely on the school because they're going to let you down. They do it all the time. That's why they're a school. They're a bureaucracy. And, uh, you know, they're only as good as their donors and so on. I bet you if donors start pulling money until the school gets their stuff together, I bet you then they start paying attention because I know that's what works. You take away donations from people and from their organizations in a big way, right? One of these donors has their kid, God forbid, raped or assaulted in some way, shape or form. By the way, it doesn't have to be necessarily sexual. It can be verbal too, right? None of it's good. None of it makes any sense. Anyway, when we come back from break, we're going to talk about how schools brace for the surge in demand for mental health. No kidding. Like if you're walking around a campus at a university and with something like this going on, you need to go talk to someone. Problem is, there's going to be anybody there to talk to. That's a real question. So we want to hear from you. 416-870-6400. Are we up for, ready for a tsunami, a mess of uh, unsettled mental health coming forward? I think so. I want to hear from you too. Yonabud, 640, Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Budd on 640 Toronto. Students streamed into schools across Toronto, in York, Durham, and in Peel Region. A bit nervous, but at the same time excited. I mean, he's excited to meet new friends. Ontario has had the longest interruption to in-person classes in the country. Parents and doctors say the impact on children's mental health has been severe. They're hopeful kids can stay in school. Being at home is isolating. Kids and adults, too, need to be with peers. They need to be engaging one-on-one. This pediatrician, whose four sons started school, is reminded 
reminding families the risk of COVID-19 for kids right now is low. With the public health policies, the masking, the distancing, the increasing ventilation efforts, we stay home if we're sick, and the mass vaccination protocols that we have, we should keep numbers low and therefore very few kids will get sick. Well, there you have it. You know, um, we've been talking about it since really the beginning of the pandemic several years ago and all the stuff I've been doing, um, been, you know, letting people know ahead of time that this is going to be a real mess. I can see it just in my my little place in the world where we see people in residence at the farm or I see people uh, recover at home uh, for, imp- you know, uh, uh, virtual uh, outpatient care or people in my private practice. Right. It's, it's, it's you know, there's there's. Um, you know, I can just see we can just see the numbers increasing, the number of people that are calling me uh, for help. And, and, and I'm just one little guy. Right. <laughs> so what we're what we're finding here is that the schools are, are really trying to figure out what they're going to do and how they're going to respond to this situation, which is not just the education to catch up with all the education that we lost over the last 18 months. And kids that we thought got educated by virtual classes really didn't learn much of anything and so on. Don't even get me started. But, are, you know, are you concerned about your kids' mental health or are you concerned about the mental health of kids going forward? I mean, adults is a big deal, too. Or we can see it in doctors and nurses like we've been talking about. 416-870-6400. You're talking to Yona Bud, and this is The Road to Recovery, and thank you for joining me tonight. Um, Unity's health school-based mental health clinics in Toronto say therapists and pediatricians are bracing for what's anticipated to be a storm of referrals. Imagine. They're talking about a storm of referrals. In the fall, as kids return to the classroom, some for the first time in over a year, teachers are preparing lesson plans for kids and youth of all ages focused on the the pandemic's emotional impact, which I think is great. Strategies for how to cope and where to to find help should they they need it and so on. I, I think it's great. I'm not sure that teachers are trained to do that. I'm not, I'm not sure how quickly this, this, um, this course material was put together. Uh, but I, I applaud the, the idea. I'm just not sure we have the right strategies or the right the right uh, resources in place. Like I'm hoping that the, the school system is going to be spending a fortune on hiring counselors and therapists to actually attend at school like they did when I was a kid. Spending money on all kinds of other stuff. Let's make sure these kids are going to be resilient. The efforts are uh, part of a larger focus in Ontario on the mental health of kids and youth as they return this fall. Uh, you know, after enduring lockdowns and isolation and mo- months and year uh, over a year of remote learning, uh, all experts and educators say students especially have struggled uh, amid the emotional roller coaster that the pandemic has brought. And it's a goal, it's a goal that mental health will not only take center stage, but will also be woven into the fabric of the curriculum. So I like that, right? They're going to make this a part of the curriculum, that that is unequivocal, uh, equivocal that our students and our staff have suffered, according to Louise Sirisco. She's the director of education at York Region District School Board. We know that if our students are not emotionally strong, they're not going to be in a positive place to engage with learning. No kidding. And the data coming out of sick kids, wow, it, it's mind-boggling. In a sick kids survey of Ontario children and their patients, more than half of kids aged 8 to 12, kids 8 to 12, we already know that teenagers have a big problem. We already know teenagers were having a problem long before the pandemic, just because I don't think we're doing a great job of parenting and so on uh, these days. But now we're finding that more than half of the kids in that age group, 8 to 12, formative years, years that if you don't have the right structure in place and the right foundation in the place and the right nurturing and care you're going to end up coming to see me when you're 15 or 18, unfortunately, trying to deal with the mess that was left behind with poor parenting or not the right parenting. 
That's a 70% jump among adolescents. If you look at adolescents, that number jumps to 70%. So 50% of kids aged to 12, 70% of adolescents claim that they have symptoms of depression and, 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 and more. We know that suicide rates are up. We know that um, self-harm is up. We know that drug abuse is up. Um, there's been a substantial increase between 42 and 49% in texts about self-harm, according to my friends at Kids Help Phone. Without them, I don't know where these kids would be. I mean, thankfully, they're in place. Uh, substance abuse, body imaging, suicide, and grief between January and end of July compared to the same time frame last year. It's a big problem. And they need to, the school system needs to meet this challenge or our kids are going to be way out of control. We're going to be in a position where they're just not going to be able to make it. It's about providing really inclusive, culturally responsive classroom settings. It's about skill building. It's about how we can support students that are feeling less resilient. Some kids are rock stars. You know, they can get through it. You know, they've, maybe they come from a, a family environment where there's a lot of friction and, and, and issues, or they come from a family that's nurturing and caring and supportive in a way that makes your kid feel safe. Kids feel safe. They don't feel so panicky. If they don't feel safe, they're very panicky. You call it anxiety. I call it feeling unsafe. Some schools are also being supported by external programs, like Model Schools Pediatric Health Initiative out of St. Mike's Hospital, great program, serves over 50, 50 inner city schools. You didn't even know about this, right? And there's clinics based in places like Spruce Court Public School and Nelson Mandela Public School, a pediatrician and uh, lead. Her name is uh, Sloan Freeman, excellent doctor. She sa she's saying there's an anticipation of storm of referrals coming out of these hospitals, uh, coming out of these schools. It's very difficult to identify kids' needs virtually. you got to see them. You know, the fact that I'm able to conduct uh, therapy and uh, see hundreds of people virtually in our outpatient program and it's effective and they're, and they're doing well, but at some point I meet them if I can. If they live close enough that we can meet up, we try to meet up at least for a quick visit. Usually it's to hand off their book and their breathalyzer and their urine test kits and the stuff they need to give them. But it, there's nothing better than doing an assessment in person. But if you can't, it can be done virtually. I'm not sure I agree with them. Right. So you can you can identify them by asking the right questions. Lots of ADHD issues and autism and such, you know, a little harder to pick up on that through a screen. But general anxiety, if you ask the right questions, you know, how much time you spend thinking about tomorrow? There's your anxiety question. How many times how much time you spend thinking about yesterday and all the horrible things that happened in the past? There's your depression issue. And how much time are you spending living in the moment? There's your mindfulness. Are you living in today moment? Like doesn't take a lot of questions to figure it out. So to address this, we're trying to figure out how to put together programs for schools, for kids, so that they understand, we understand what they're going through. So the School Mental Health Ontario tried to create resources that are easily implemented in lesson plans. So, for example, teachers are encouraged to incorporate little wellness activities in the first 10 days of school and between lessons. Just little things that can be slotted into those early days of school that help with reminders about wellness and taking care of yourself, according to a teacher in that program. Um, at York at York's school board, these preparations underscore the increased role over the last few years of schools in ensuring kids are not only up to speed academically, but emotionally and mentally. Like everyone's waking up to the fact we need to do this. We needed to do this all along, right? This is something we needed to to do all along. You know, now that we're 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 sort of waking up to it because it's in our face. It's kind of slapping us in the face. But not thinking about kids' mental health, wellness. 
through the process. I mean, I, I, I'm dealing, you know, I'm dealing with patients that have issues around teachers, elementary school teachers, young, you know, kids in grade one and two and three who are misbehaving in grade five and six misbehaving and have to write horrible letters home to their parents, admitting how horrible they were as students. This teacher was since, you know, removed after we got involved and the parents were, you know, just absolutely dumbfounded by the amount of, of abuse that the teacher put on this student and made them feel bad, like singling kids out. You know, when I was a kid, you know, I was constantly uh, hearing class, Mr. Bud, you got something to share with the whole class? And, of course, I went to school with guys like Howie Mandel, who, between the two of us, lots of reasons to be to be distracted while he's making stupid noises and, you know, doing half the stuff he now does for huge money uh, in, in public, right? But, I mean, we weren't great kids. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't the best student. Don't get me wrong. But to be singled out in class, like I didn't really give a give much of a damn. I was like, you know, I had my finger out in the middle, my middle finger out to the school board, you know, since I could remember. But I was a tough kid, a bad kid anyway. The system didn't matter to me. I was, you know, messed up in many other ways. Not, of course, now as an adult, know what those were, but didn't at the time, right? But being singled out, you know, called out in class, made to feel stupid, made to feel like un, you're unworthy, you're unprepared. Causes kids to do horrible things. You know, we think it's disciplining. Teachers will say, well, you know, they just have to know that there's, you know, a requirement for them to do this and this. If not, they're going to get called out on it. Yeah, well, calling them out on it is one thing. Do it after class. Do it quietly. Ask them to stay for a minute after class. But doing it in front of other students, just not a cool thing to do. You know, teachers in particular, you know, do a great job for the most part of nurturing and caring for their kids, the kids that they teach. But I'll tell you something. A lot of them forget the fact that they're there to teach and to nurture. And a lot of them worry about their own self-worth. And they don't like to be um, contradicted. And they don't like to be challenged by, by, by a student. Well, guess what? You're the adult. Buck up. Do what you need to do. Turn it into a teaching lesson. Don't take it personally. And do your job. We shouldn't have to be catching ourselves going, oh, you know what? We need to be nicer to kids so that they don't want to kill themselves. Like, duh. So I guess, I, I guess I'm feeling a little bit, I don't know, amped up here about how, what, what we're going to be doing going forward, but I know it's not going to be enough. I can tell it's not going to be enough. It wasn't enough to begin with. So hopefully people are going to pay attention and hopefully, uh, people like Nadine Yosef, who is a writer for the Toronto Star on mental health. She's an excellent writer. We keep trying to get her on the show, but she doesn't want to come. Um, she talk, runs about mental health and does a great job of uh, shining a light and profiling the stuff that we need to pay attention to. So I'm just telling you, man, uh, make sure that if your kids are in school, you know kids that are in school, uh, pay attention to them. If they're coming home in a miserable mood going, Mrs. So-and-so did so-and-so, and they made my, you know, I, could, I couldn't go out for lunch because they made me stay. you got to pay attention to that because right now is not the time to single a kid out because they forgot their uh, homework at home. Anyway, when we come back, we're going to talk about some other stuff. We're just going to take a little break here for some news and so on. Uh, what we're going to call about, when we come back, we're going to talk about flight attendants and the stuff that they're complaining about. And uh, I think you should need to pay attention to it because I think it's really uh, important that we pay attention if we're ever going to be flying again. You want to know how these people think, what these people think about us, the flight attendants and the people that are serving us on a plane, don't you? Well, when you come back, we're going to talk about that. See you in just a few minutes. Yona Bud, 640, Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. 
And welcome back. Thank you for joining us uh, for the second hour of our show. Uh, this is Yona Bud, and you are on the road to recovery. And I have Chris from Huntsville who wants to talk to me. She has a daughter at Western. Uh, Chris, or I'm, I'm not sure, maybe a, it could be a mother, it could be a father. Chris, how are you? Oh, good, Yona. It's actually my boy down there, Dan. Oh, it's your boy. Okay, your first year kid at Western. Okay, yeah, your boy's down there. Down so, is it, is, it, is, is it a little a little less scary for you because you have boys, you think, than if you had a girl there? Oh, no, boys get raped too, Dan. I mean, yeah. you know, boys are getting raped too down there. Yeah, I know. Uh, is you, now, obviously, your kid was raised in Huntsville? Oh, uh, yeah, just outside, down in Barrie. We used to live down in Barrie. Okay, so is your kid street-proofed at all? Does he know what to look for and how to protect himself and all that kind of stuff? Did you do some, did you do some good street-proofing before you send them off? You know, we did some hunting back in the day, but in Trudeau's Canada, firearms aren't an option, you know. <laughs> your fists or some pepper spray or just have a buddy with you so that it's, yeah. you're not all alone how are you coping as a as a father how are you how are you managing oh you know you have to trust in them when they grow up they got to be on their own but as a father i'm worried well i appreciate the call and i appreciate you being a listener and uh, i worry along with you my friend so hopefully your son will be well and uh, i appreciate you uh, you sharing with us here tonight i'll tell you something if you were on your way to london today and you were taking a plane and you had to get on a plane and you were flying somewhere uh flight attendants today um are just kind of you know getting close to the end of their uh, end of their rope i suppose um according to this flight attendant <clears throat> her name is um her name is, I believe, uh, Carolyn Mercedes. Uh, she's just about seen everything you will see in the five years I've been a flight attendant. I spoke to some of my colleagues, and they came up with a list of 17 things we wish passengers uh, wouldn't see. And I'm just wondering how you feel about this stuff. 416-870-6400. Listen to what uh, flight attendants and, and people that are in that business are saying about us. Uh, they're talking about things like ignoring us at the boarding door is a little rude. Uh, boarding is usually set uh, the tones for the entire uh, flight. Um, so we appreciate when you say hello to us, right? So ignoring them at their door is not nice. You're, you're kind of coming home to their house, right? So you're coming home to their house. You should be saying, hi, how are you? You know, it's not, hi, how are you? It's just the natural thing to do. Number two, don't ask us if you're going to make your light, your tight connection when we're landing on time. They, they have no way to know. They can't tell you how many times the passengers ask them if they're going to make their connection. It's not their job to necessarily you know, connect you. I can tell you that in the past, uh, when I was flying back in the old days, when you didn't have to take off your shoes, your belt, your underwear, and everything else to get through the gate, um, you know, you get on a flight and you were getting close, they would, they would, you know, flight attendants and people would uh, let the, when we landed, would certainly, uh, rec you know, get a hold of the gate and, um, let them know that someone was coming and they would hold the flight. I mean, I don't know if they do that these days, but anyway, please stop poking us to get our attention. There is no time when it's okay to touch another person without their permission. Use your voice, they say. Use your call button. Raise your hand, anything. But don't stop us by touching us. Okay, that's fair. Taking your shoes off. I'm so with them. Taking your shoes off is pretty gross, they say. Yeah, and, and neighbors don't like it to smell your smelly feet. Like, it's not okay to take your shoes off on an airplane because you're trying to get comfortable, especially if your feet stink. So if you know you got stinky feet, don't take your shoes off. Try not to ask for a blanket. We usually don't have a bunch of extras. 
It's not like the old days. There, although airports and airplanes are known for being cold, you should probably have your own little throw something with you. Make sure you got a sweatshirt or something or something, a sweater or something you can throw on to keep you nice and warm and cozy. Or take a little blanket, something you can take yourself. You can buy them. They're inexpensive. They're made from microfiber. They fold easily. You can tuck them away in your carry-on. Not a big deal. They don't have extra blankets today. They don't have extra anything. They're just trying to get you from A to B without too much trouble. And these days... It's a problem, right? So make sure you prepare for yourself. We don't like when you ring the bell to hand us trash. Like if you got garbage, just hang on to it until they come by and then give them the, the trash that you need to have taken from you, right? When you leave your headphones on, this is what they don't like, when, when, when passengers leave their headphones on while talking to them, it's harder for us to communicate. Like, no, I think it is so rude when someone is talking to me or, you know, trying to get my attention and they're wearing a set of headphones. And I say it all the time. I don't care who it is, if it's one of my kids or it's a stranger, right? Or if I'm with a patient on a virtual session and they're doing something else and they're not paying attention to me, I find it rude. So when you're not paying attention to me because you're wearing headphones, I find it rude. I'm sure a flight attendant feels that way as well. Show some respect. A lot of these these items, these 17 items, it's just about lack of respect. And really, that's who we are today? Come on. It's not a wise idea to get up to use the bathroom as soon as you get on the plane or when we take off. It's just not smart, and it happens every flight. And sometimes it, hold, it, it, it it's a problem for people because it takes time for the plane to level off. It's just not a smart thing to do. We can't allow you to play music or videos out loud at full volume. You have to make sure you're packing headphones. Apparently, people get on a plane without headphones, and they fully expect that they can blare their stuff through the, the, the speaker, and it's going to be okay with everybody. It's not. Certainly not okay with me, Right. Here's one real real showstopper, right? Don't bother arguing with us over the face mask policy. These are people that work for the airlines. They don't get to set policy. They're like you and me. They're just trying to make a living. So don't aggravate them and ask them to be politicians and to take on a responsibility that's not theirs. They're not there to advocate for you so you don't have to wear a mask. You got to wear a mask on an airplane, plain and simple. If you don't want to do it, don't fly. Stop using the galley as your personal yoga studio. I find this so aggravating when I do fly. People standing in the, in the galley area stretching and bending and using the walls to you know, do their little exercises and routines. No, it's an airplane. The goal here is for you to get on a plane and get off on the other side, right? People have been, according to Corio, one of my producers, people have been removed by police for not wearing masks, not listening to flight attendants. So this is not something they would like. If you don't do it, Corey's bang on, as always. Excellent producer, by the way. And, you know, you want to make sure that people understand that this isn't, you know, some of these things will get you ejected, right? Telling me what other airlines do and won't change, that do that won't change anything. So talking to a flight attendant about, well, if I was on American, they would do this. Waking up your neighbor to hand them a snack or a drink isn't as polite as you think. Let people sleep. You can ask where we're flying over, but we probably don't know. There's a map that you can go to on the plane, an interactive map. It'll tell you exactly where the plane is flying. You can find it on any of the electronic devices that are on the plane. Getting up during turbulence puts you and those at risk. Honestly, if the, if the plane isn't safe to be walking around in, don't walk around. Not watching your children can be unsafe and unfair to other passengers. There's other people that expect flight attendants to be babysitters doesn't work like that. Just like school isn't a place to go babysitting. No one's going to take care of your kids but you. Some may educate them. Flight attendants may make sure that they get to where they got to get to safely, but it's your job to keep your kids in check on an airplane. 
And just remember, don't take your frustrations out on them. It doesn't help anybody. It just puts everybody in a bad position, especially where these people are going to be flying to the next place. And these some of these flight attendants get off the plane and they're tired and they're they're angry and they're upset and they've been demeaned. We don't want those. We, we don't want that. That's just not fair. They're just trying to do their job. So let's be nicer when we're flying. Anyway, speaking of uh, being a little bit nicer, you know, when you went to law school, anybody went to law school, I wasn't, you know, they should have probably taken some kind of self-defense course because when we come back from break, we're going to be talking to a lawyer about the uh, killing of a young lady who worked in a law office here in Toronto uh, and she was killed. And um, now the question is, is it dangerous to be a lawyer in Ontario? And when we come back, we're going to talk to an expert about that and uh, do some more stuff. So do come back in a minute. This is Jonah Budd on 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the Road to Recovery. This is Yona Bud on 640 Toronto, and we appreciate you being here tonight. You have other choices, and we glad we are glad that you chose us. It's now uh, 1017, 1018, close enough. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones, your pets? If not, you need to find them. If you can't find them, you should call us right here, right now, 416-870-6400, or call 911 if you think they're actually in danger. You can always reach me throughout the week, Road to Recovery at 640toronto.com, or by calling me on my private 1-800 number, 877-777-5808. Glad to talk to you, see if I can help in whatever way possible. Um, so tonight we're going to talk a little bit um, about what it means to be a lawyer in Ontario. We have a guest who's going to join us. His name is Monty McGregor. He's a criminal defense lawyer with McGregor Mariah Horick, LLP. And really it comes from an article on September 11th about a young lady who was killed in a law firm. Um, her name was um, her name was uh, Julia Ferguson. And um, it came after the killing of a lawyer named Scott Rosen, 52 years of age. Uh, he had issues and... Before that, there was a lawyer named Rosen who had issues, and another guy named John uh, John Struthers was a lawyer who had issues and was attacked, and people have been shot and attacked and run over by vehicles and so on. Um, Monty McGregor, thank you for joining us tonight. I appreciate you uh, being up with us so late. Um, Not when at you went all. To law, oh, yeah. When you went to, thank me. you, man. Thank you. When you went to law school, do you think that maybe uh, some self-defense perhaps or some a carry permit for carrying a firearm was in, was in check? Well, I can tell you the first time I ever met a, a client in criminal law, the, fir- the lawyer that was with me said, hey, you take kickboxing, don't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, good, this guy attacked me the last time I was here. He said, but oh don't worry, God. that was over That was over money. And so oh, I tell oh, people God. this story because it was, in a, it was in Renfrew, in the Renfrew County Jail, which used to be attached to the courthouse. And when we sat right. down in this tiny room that was about six feet by five feet, there was one table, three chairs, and the guy came in and he had a shaved head with a scorpion tattoo that was on the top of his head and the tail sort of spiraled around his neck. And I thought, I'm going to die oh in this room. <laughs> so, <laughs> now, that was 20 years ago, so thankfully it didn't happen. But I can tell you, uh, when you start your career, uh, especially in criminal law, you don't think you're going to encounter the things that you eventually do uh, in a long career like I've had. You know, it's interesting. How long have you been doing this, by the way, buddy? About 20 years I've been in criminal law, and I uh, I focus mostly on sort of very serious crime. I do a lot of homicide trials and uh, and true crime with guns and drugs and things of that nature. So uh, 
that's sort of the specialty. I don't do very much impaired driving or things of that nature. So a lot you're of my kind, well, you're my kind of guy. We're going to have to keep your your name uh, because we have, we're looking for experts. I've got all kinds of DUI guys, but I clearly need one of you. So thanks for <laughs> now making you now made it to the list. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. So, but on on a serious note, though, brother, um, you know when you do a, when you look at a list of, of of job opportunities, you know when you're looking at careers, you know firemen, policemen, you know the you know certain high high rise construction. Workers, you know, there's certain lists of names of businesses, you know, lists of, of of job opportunities, careers that you know one would think that they're somewhat at risk. I've never seen being a lawyer on one of them, but if you think about it, if you're defending criminals and you're just not the right guy for them at that time, you're going to be on the end of their wrath, right? The other end of their wrath. So it's not uncommon. Um, now that you see, what, now that we're seeing what we're seeing and it's being reported, anything changing for you at your law firm? Like you hiring a security guard or anything like that? Well, it's funny that you say that because I think, I, I don't know if it's COVID. Uh, I don't know if it's the increase in the use of people providing their opinions on the internet, but quite frankly, it's, I've known law firms and I've seen law firms that have usually what uh, for a security measure, they have like an anterior room uh, outside of their lobby. So you think of like a psychiatrist where you have to go yeah. in there first and sit. Yeah. And uh, yeah. usually those rooms will have like a video camera capable of accessing the room so that the people inside the office know who it is and then they get buzzed in. Um, and so those, that's typically the security procedure that normally I've seen in, in some law firms that have gone that route. But I can tell you for me, in 20 years, it's very unique that you ever actually have any sense of fear or concern with a client. And usually in my experience, and I think all of the, all of the cases that you noted involve individuals that have, if they don't have a mental health issue, then they do have borderline, you know, personality disorders. Because often what I find is that, you know, the clients, even the clients that I deal with in organized crime and with guns and violence, usually, you know, you're there to help them. So they respect you. They'll listen to you as long as you have integrity and deal with them in a respectful manner and don't let yourself get pushed around. Then I've never, I mean, it's, it's very rare that I've ever had a situation and almost always that person's had an underlying mental health issue, be it, They've got psychopathic issues or or schizophrenia or something that takes it out of the realm of control. And that's where I think, sadly, that occurrence in Toronto recently with the young lady that was the secretary in an office, um, I, I... I don't know the individual that was charged. I know that there is a concern because I, I did happen to see his very first court appearance and there was some concern about, you know, his mental fitness and things of that nature, which didn't surprise me at all. Do you feel safe at work? You know what I do? Because, um, I, as I said, I, I think in the beginning, I can tell you the first time I ever went into the Don jail, I was, oh, I God. was, uh, I, I was, spent a lot of years I there. Was nervous. Yeah, I can tell you, I was sort of petrified. Yeah. And then, yes. and I remember also in the very early part of my career, I was on a case with uh, where the, the Hells Angels were being prosecuted collectively as a group. And there were 10 or 12 of them in, in the courtroom at one time and all of these senior lawyers. And I was there thinking, okay, what am I doing here? And it was funny because I, I looked at them and I thought, well, they look like, you know, extras from Lord of the Rings or, you know, that they're all uh, very big fans of ZZ Top. But even there where I was representing, a high-ranking member of the Hells Angels, I found that as long as you're decent to them, there was the, the, the fear evaporated very quickly once you felt that they had your respect. So, right. 
So, yeah, I think yeah. so too. But but yeah. but what's but here's a difference. And, and again, I we've got such limited time. I wish I could keep you on all night. But um, how do you protect your staff though? So it's one thing, you know, for you to cover yourself out and so on, and you know, make sure that you're you know you're okay. But in this case, you know, here here's a, a young lady who was working in the office. She was you know um, just she's the front line you know worker so to speak in in a law office. You know how do how do you how do you, can you protect your staff? I mean. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of law clerks and, and secretaries and receptionists in, in many uh, in many firms now wondering, you know, how safe they are. Absolutely, I think I think this is rocks the community. I mean, I know everybody involved and the the criminal law community. It's funny because I used to say that the people that had real concerns were people in family law because. Um, those are high pressure situations for where people where yeah. they're talking about money, yeah. losing their children. Yeah. And a lot of times there's an overlap in a criminal law where you see domestic related offenses that are driven off of separation and arguments. But now with criminal law, I can tell you my community has been rocked by this and lots of people are beside themselves trying to figure out what to do. And, and frankly, I think you can establish policies and procedures where it's like, okay, there's always got to be two people in the office. You can put in a metal detector if you feel necessary. But usually, I mean, the other thing about criminal law is unlike areas of other areas of law, it's not well financed. I I mean, it really isn't because most of the people, for example, that I deal with are in custody. They're They've got addictions or, you know, they come from uh, broken backgrounds. So are the, are the, are the they're, on, they're on a legal, they're on a legal aid ticket for the most part. Yeah, right? That's right. No, you're exactly right. And, and criminal law also doesn't have the infrastructure. Lots of times you're meeting people, you know, and, and it's a one person office or, you know, and, and so you can, you can think about it, putting in policies in place, but I sort of hold on to the fact that these are one-off people with very serious de- you know, mental deficiencies and their rare occurrences. Um, because other than that, other than, as I said, putting a, a separate room outside where you, you know, you buzz the person in and you schedule meetings when there's multiple people in the office, I think, I think you'd be hard pressed to find the infrastructure in place in criminal law firms that would be capable of achieving that, frankly. So I think I could, it's, uh, it's a bit of a wild card on how to proceed going forward. You know, years ago, uh, many years ago, I've been a criminal investigator for th- 37 years as part of my career. And uh, going back to my early days, I was working, I worked with pretty much everybody in town. You were probably still a kid at the time. But Kenny Danson and I were on a file together. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's since passed away. And um, mm-hmm. Ken, Kenny and I were on a, fi- on a file together. And we were interviewing witnesses. interviewing uh, we were interviewing uh, witnesses. And um, one of them became very uh, aggravated and uh, became somewhat violent in, in, in their verbal uh, discussion with us. And he just dis- he just just disarmed the guy using his words. And um, mm-hmm. and I, I was always in re- respected it a lot, respected that kind of control. But you know what? Listen, there, there's a lot to talk about, Monty, and, and mm-hmm. we're going to have to have you come back and talk about other stuff. But um, we're going to have Corey add you to our list of great lawyers um, that deal yeah. with serious crimes uh, and such. So we'll we'll be reaching out again. But uh, I just hope you and your staff stay safe. And uh, I appreciate you sharing with us tonight and being available. And um, I just think you're absolutely right. You know, we're dealing with people with mental health issues. I deal with them all day in my in my day job. And uh, sometimes you just got to be a little cautious when they have that look, you know, that look, you've been around long enough, that look in their eye where they're just not home. And that's where you're, that's really, I think when you need to be prepared to defend yourself. Yeah. Ones that are the scariest. It's almost like you look at them and it's a very vacant void what you're seeing. So I, I totally understand exactly. uh, what you're exactly. saying. Yona, you know, thanks for having me. As, as My I said, pleasure. I really like educating people on the criminal justice system and thank you for having me on.
I really My pleasure. Monty McGregor, a really good guy. Criminal defense lawyer McGregor Moriah Horek. Hopefully you don't need him, but if you get really jammed up in a serious mess, you want to talk to him um, and uh, look them up because I think they're, uh, he is a quality guy, and I'm sure the firm is equally uh, qualified to do what it is you might need. So thanks for joining us to talk about this uh, this discussion tonight about being in a law firm. Um, because you know what? You just never know, right? You could be sitting in the law firm waiting to get your will done. And, you know, one of the criminal lawyers in there might have banged somebody up in the wrong way. And anyway, I don't know. Everywhere we go these days, people are angry and we're just not safe. So we're going to let you go to break here. As soon as we come back, we're going to figure it out. If you're lazy or undisciplined, or maybe you have something called internal resistance, 416-870-6400. If you think you're lazy, I might be able to help you turn that thinking around. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back. This is Yona. You're on the Road to Recovery. We've got a couple of more segments left, and we're glad that you were able to join us. We thank all of the callers for calling. Some of them we couldn't take because we ran out of time or changed subjects, but we thank you for calling anyway, and please don't be discouraged and call again. Do you think you're lazy? Someone in your life said, you know what, you're just a lazy so-and-so. 416-870-6400. Is that something you heard growing up or something you feel maybe about yourself that you're lazy and undisciplined? Well, maybe not. Maybe it's something that you've got called internal resistance. Yeah, right? If you're experiencing internal resistance, it's not a flaw. It's not, it, it, nor is it all powerful. It's a facet of human creativity and growth, and it can be managed. We have to start by recognizing what it is. So if you think you've been lazy... Let's talk about this concept of internal resistance. Uh, the War of Art, written by Stephen uh, uh, Pressfield. He names the force that keeps us from using our talents, the resistance. The resistance is a mysterious, hostile force, he says, an enemy that has uh, an enemy that has been uh, bested. In Pressfield's imagery, we spend each day fighting back the resistance in an internal battle that is as timeless as it is endless. Internal resistance is not a freestanding, inherently mal- malevolent, tendency of the universe it's not the freaking dark side or so on he goes on to say every talent and skill and every goal we have our brains our personal history our families and our culture so internal resistance is an attempt to avoid the pain we associate with sex successfully doing something people have an issue by the way in doing well i I treat patients all the time who have issues around doing well so what can you do with your internal resistance here's what you can do you can think about internal resistance this way becomes clear when approaching it through ideas of laziness or lack of discipline is so unhelpful. It, it's, it's not what it is at all. It's a resistance. It's not lazy. It, it's, it's energetic, as they say. This resistance, it, it takes a lot of work to push it back and our desire to move forward, our goal day after day after day. So basically, we're, lo- we're locked into a mental tug of war in our heads, right? Trying to apply discipline, which may not work. So here's some places to start. Recognize, number one, that internal resistance is on your side. Part of what's so awful about the cycle of not doing the thing is that it feels so self-destructive. But internal resistance does not want to destroy us. It literally wants to do the opposite. It only exists to protect us from pain. So you know something, you know, sometimes you hurt yourself and then all of a sudden, you know, you, you, you make a move and then all of a sudden your back hurts, your arm hurts or something. Your muscles are getting in place there to protect you from something that's probably not good right? Maybe protecting you from a a worse strain or a break or a sprain of some sort. So 
getting curious about this pain that your brain is so worried about. This is internal resistance is there to protect you from the stuff that, that bothers you. When you understand exactly where the pain, what, what pain we fear, then you can work to reducing those fears, right? So in response, it responds to reason, to alternative scenarios, to making space for the emotion, such like a, a treat or a threat. You know, if I don't do this, I'll do this to myself. And I won't, but if I do this, I'll do this, right? Negotiate. You might not be able to figure out what's, what's motivating your internal resistance immediately, but once you do, it can take some time to figure out how to address your fears and worries about the pain in the offing. So you need to do some negotiating. You can create so much increased space in your brain just by moving from, I need to apply willpower so I stop being so bad and lazy, to, I'm experiencing a lot of internal resistance right now. Let me give... Um, you know, some, some, let me get some look at it. Let me look at it um, and do something inventive in my work today, right? So, you know, internal resistance is something that's in place because there's something that you're trying to block that might hurt you. Recognize that you're not alone in this, by the way. So, it's, it's, you know, even if resistance is not a superhuman force, it's right to envision it has something that, that sits on all, that gets to all of us, right? <clears throat> there are rare people who do not, for some reason, or at least don't seem to experience it, right? They seem to produce and produce and produce. But I'm willing to bet you also seem like, seem like the kind of person that, that, would, that would be someone in your life that you could, you know, that you, you would know. You would know if someone in your life is sitting in a position of resistance. Sometimes it's writers, artists often, right? People just, you know, there's days where I've just blocked. I just can't do the kind of work I want to do if I'm writing something or creating a show or something. There's just, sometimes I just need to put it down, listen to my resistance and figure out a way to produce, Right, you got to listen to your resistance. It's a form of wisdom rather than something that's coming out to, to to bite you in the bum. It's telling you something, right? Your resistance is telling you something. It holds a lot of knowledge about where we secretly believe we might be able to do something. It's it's really the fear that we have for not succeeding in what it is we're supposed to do, right? So if you if you're if you're concerned about getting something done and you keep putting it off. You need to look at the fear around getting it done. Some people have a real hard time with being successful. They're fearful of success. They don't know what that's going to do for them because they're so used to not being successful. We need to apply willpower, stop being so bad on ourselves, right? We need to apply willpower to our thinking and our self-talk that says, hmm, there's a resistance here. Look at that resistance. Pay attention to it. Why am I being held back here? What's, what's behind this that I'm not paying attention to? Hmm, I need to pay attention to this. I'm going to go pour myself a coffee or a tea or have a glass of water, or go for a walk, and I'm going to think about what's really holding me back. What's holding me back from getting this essay done? And I was a big procrastinator. I'm still a big procrastinator, unfortunately. Probably not the greatest attribute to have in life. Probably my ADD and my OCD don't help that much either, right? But, you know, for me, I, I, I have to look at things and kind of gear myself up, build myself up, psych myself up to get certain things done, right? And I set myself up a time and a place. My workspace is very important. The, the tools I have are very important. I need a couple of pens. I need a couple of highlighters. I need extra paper. I know the things that I need to make it easier for me. But if I'm keeping myself from doing the do, the thing I need to do exactly, then I have to ask myself, what, do you, what, do you, what are you holding back from? Maybe it's not. And then I go through the self-talk. Maybe it's not going to be good enough. And maybe I shouldn't do it right now. And, you know, maybe if I wait, it'll be more creative. It'll sound better. I won't sound so stupid. That's negative self-talk. 
Positive self-talk is, you know, I'm going to take this time to really think. I'm going to make some notes, look at my notes in a little while, look at them again, and do it in little tiny pieces, right? You can do this in little tiny pieces. So the problem here is not is negative self-talk. You're not lazy. You're not stupid. But maybe there's some internal resistance that's keeping you from being and doing the things you want to do and being the person you want to be. It's okay. Look into it. Understand it. Talk to it. Let it be a part of your life. And, and don't be afraid of it. Just figure out where it's coming from, and then you're in a position to manage it in a positive way. When we come back from break, I want to talk to you about eulogies. I was attended, attended a virtual funeral for a cl- close, close friend who passed away on uh, this past week. Talk about her in a minute. As soon as we come back, if you had to write your own eulogy, would you be able to? I'm going to teach you how. As soon as we come back, 416-870-6400 if you want to join us. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Well, as genius as he was on stage, he was the greatest friend you could ever imagine. Supportive, protective, loving. It's very hard to talk about him in the past because he was so present in all of our lives. For almost 40 years, he was the brightest star in a comedy galaxy. But while some of the brightest of our celestial bodies are actually extinct now, their energy long since cooled, but miraculously, because they float in the heavens so far away from us now, their beautiful light will continue to shine on us forever. And the glow will be so bright, it'll warm your heart, it'll make your eyes glisten, and you'll think to yourselves, Robin Williams, what a concept. Well, there you have it. There is the eulogy for a great, uh, a great comedian and a wonderful human being, Robin Williams. Uh, you're listening to Yona Bud on Road to Recovery. If you had to eulogize yourself, if you had to write your own eulogy, would you be able to do it? And what would you say? You know, I've often said to my, uh, to my wife, you know, use that in my eulogy. You know, make sure the kids say that in my eulogy. Or, or the, make sure that, you know, our son says this, right? We joke, we kind of joke about it. And the other day she said to me, you know, what do you want to do? Make notes for your kids so they know what to say? And I said, no, I want to write it. And then they can fill in what's up to date at the time. And then they know all the right things to say. I was, I was sort of kidding. I got to uh, attend a funeral on Friday of a wonderful, wonderful female, wonderful human being, wonderful woman. Her name is Esther. We call her Queen Esther. Her friends called her Nana. And um, she died on uh, Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day of the Jewish faith. Um, and not only died on Yom Kippur, but was buried on the uh, the evening, the, the, the Sabbath before, uh, prior to the Sabbath of, that comes after Yom Kippur, which is a highly, highly holy time. And really only queens and kings and royalty seem to pass away at such a time. It's when you're, it's when we believe you are at your purest. This was a woman who was just amazing. The world was so much better for knowing her and being and having her in their lives. Um, she was a wonderful human being. She was the wife of my dear friend and a mother and a grandmother and a great-grandmother. Just a wonderful, wonderful lady. And we listened to the funeral virtually um, and heard the eulogy by her children and grandchild, uh, one of many. Um, and I began thinking about what it means to write a eulogy. And here's a wonderful human being. And in her merit, I want to share this tonight. Here's a wonderful human being, which you, you couldn't say enough about her. 
enough wonderful things about her. She gave of herself to everybody all of the time. Even near death, she was more concerned about others than herself. But when it's time to write a eulogy for somebody, how do you do that? How do you share this information? How do you share the greatness of someone like Esther? How do you share the greatness in a way that people can understand? I know there's tens of thousands of you listening to me here tonight, and I want you to understand that a eulogy is an opportunity to talk about and share the things about someone that make them special, that make them unique, that make them um, worthy of all of us listening to them, mourning for them, and being a part of their loss. Because we all feel a loss when someone passes. Even if you're just driving your car and you see a funeral go by, sort of kind of grabs you a little bit in your chest. But if you had to write your own eulogy, what would you write your eulogy about? And if you had to do it yourself, what would it sound like? I know if Esther was to write her eulogy, it would all be about everybody else and not about her. So here's a great opportunity for her family to have done that. And they did it so magnificently, so eloquently, so real. And their children could say nothing but great things because she was a great woman. So what's a eulogy? It means that you're sharing a remembrance. It's a speech with the purpose of paying tribute to a loved one. It's given at funerals and memorial services, usually by family and close friends. A good eulogy highlights the lasting impact of the person on their family and community. What are they leaving behind? But if you're going to write your own eulogy, this is what it has to look like. The first section is the introduction. In the opening section, you need to cover some basics. You set the tone by beginning with a poem or a quote or scripture that was meant to that person. And they did. They shared stories that were important to her. Names that they were known by. Nicknames. Queen Esther. Nana. So on. People talk about the cause of death in the eulogy. I don't think that's necessary. And a brief insight into your relationship. So if your children, you know, my mother did this, my grandmother did this, and so on. In the middle section of the eulogy, the main part of the eulogy, this is where you talk about accomplishments. Esther had so many. Major life events, she had so many. Stories of fond memories, the eulogy would have to have gone, out for, gone on for days and hours for people who have sure to share enough stories and fond memories to actually pay her tribute how she was affected by others and how she affected others, unbelievable. Her childhood years, they her kids talked about her growing up in Europe and fleeing the Nazis and then meeting her her, her husband who of, of, I think, 47 years or something like that, long period of time, maybe 67 years, I, may, I could be wrong, but for a long time. They've been together forever and ever. Travel adventures that she had, marriage and children and other thoughts that you would share about that person. You know, Esther was an incredible human being. She did so much for so many, and she lived life to its fullest. And when you'd walk into their house, all you'd see on the walls, as much as these people could have and, and post on their, put, put on their walls, the greatest of art of any cost anywhere in the world were pictures of her family, her children, her and her husband. When they were little, when they were, when they were, when they were older, when her husband won certain awards, when, when they were recognized for certain things, all of those things. You'd walk into her house, you could see her eulogy. It's on the wall. You could see all the things about her that made her so special. It was on the wall. You could walk into the, into the house and it would smell like something magnificent that she was cooking up for one of her kids to pick up or for her husband to eat. And certainly enough times that we picked up food and things that she made that were incredible that we would have for our Sabbath table on a Friday night, for example. In the ending section, when you're summarizing a person's life, it's typically the shortest section of the eulogy. It's the part that deals with things like a final takeaway from your theme, how you want family and friends to remember the individual. I will always remember her 
as a, one, a woman with a great smile, with a great heart. She was on Facebook constantly sharing things about others and building up others and pumping up other people's situations and making people feel good about themselves. She gave up herself every day for everyone else. All she wanted to do was make people happy. That's easy to summarize in a, in a eulogy, you'd think. But when a person has so much greatness, so much wonderful, so many wonderful things in their life, how do you say enough? What is enough? Is it ever enough? I don't think the answer is yes. You know, we'll miss Esther forever. She'll be sadly missed in the synagogue that she attended and the communities that she participated in, and especially by her friends and family who would see her on a regular basis. I'm going to miss her. I'm going to miss her tweets. I'm going to miss her, her, her Facebook postings. And I'm going to miss talking, you know, to her when she'd answer the phone when I would call for my friend. You know, we talk about enjoying people's lives together with them when you're eulogizing them, especially if you're talking about a friend, common activities you enjoy together, what you like most about the person, personality traits or phrases that they would often use, how you would describe that person. Her children and grandchildren did such a great job of telling us stories that we would remember them by that were stories that family would enjoy. Things that you think about that you would share with others because you can't say enough good things about somebody. But if you had to write the eulogy for yourself, would you be honest? Would you want people to see the miserable human being that you are some of the time? Because obviously we're not all perfect. In Esther's case, there was no downside. She was an angel living in our life with us here. She was, in fact, Queen Esther. She, in fact, did good all the time. Never a negative word. Never something to say that was uh, not nice about somebody else. Even when there was a discussion to be had about somebody else that you knew wasn't nice, she wouldn't have any part of it. No negative talk. No putting anybody down. No casting any you know, negative thoughts around someone, especially if it was someone who was in trouble or, or was you know, obviously... In, in a bad way. She always made time, always had time for the downtrodden. She always had time for people who didn't have what she had. She always had time for people who needed her. Family, obviously. But strangers, people in the community. She was always available, always there. And her family's now following. Her kids are the same. They give back to the community. Her grandchildren give back to the community. Her husband's a huge supporter of activities within his community all around the world in all kinds of things, quietly, silently, not necessarily putting his name on walls or the family name up in lights. That wasn't Esther. That's not who they are. Subtle, quiet, reserved. You know, my wife and I were talking about her last night at our Sabbath table, and we were trying to remember her in, in the way that we did. And, you know, her grace, the way she handled herself with grace, held her head up with dignity all the time, was immaculately dressed all the time. She always looked together and smiling and just had warm things to say. Are they going to say that about you? Never mind. Are they going to say that about me? I'm now starting to think about things that people are going to say about me. Maybe that's why I want to write my own eulogy, to make sure they don't miss out on the stuff that I want them to pay attention to. Because when I look back, I don't see all the great stuff necessarily. I see things I could do better things I could do different, things I wanted to do again, retakes, remakes, redos, if you will. No, not Esther. She was happy with, with where she was. She was happy with where she fit in all of it. She was happy with what she actually did today. 
no thoughts of what she could have done and would like to do it again. I want us all to learn from Esther, learn from the life that she led. She had everything she needed and couldn't do enough to give everything she could back to everyone else. Never asked for herself, never wanted for herself. Her, one of her kids said jokingly that if you, if you, if you said to Nana that, that you, know, you really liked the piece of jewelry she was wearing that day, she would stop whatever she was doing, take it off and give it to you, or the hat, or the purse, or whatever. That's who she was. That's who she's going to be remembered as. The eulogy, the eulogizing by her family wasn't complete because it wasn't enough. It wasn't long enough because there was only so much time. But certainly gave us all an insight into the giving, the caring, the sharing, the loving, the laughter, the wit, the brilliance of this incredible human being. So as a tribute to her, to my dear friend Esther, may she rest in peace. May her family mourn in comfort. That I want people to understand that you need to recognize that what people say about you when you're past has everything to do with who you are in this in, in, in the day, in today, in right here, right now, in the mindful moment of reality, into in this time that we're living. You want to make sure that when people are talking about you, they're sharing things about you that you want others to hear. You want your grandchildren and great-grandchildren, if you're fortunate to have them. You want neighbors and people in the community to hear stories about you that are truthful and honest and not people holding back all the horrible negative things you might have said or done. Somehow when you're eulogizing someone, that all goes away. What we share is the perfection, the positive side of the human being, the things about them that made them so special. With Esther, everything they shared was about her that was special, unique, and different. She truly was an angel and will continue above looking down on all of us, giving us the comfort and the safety that we're looking for. And her family will continue to share her stories and insights and recipes for decades and centuries and lifetimes to come. So it's with that in mind, I ask you all to hug your friends, love the ones you're with, make sure that you do things in your life that people will remember you by that are good things, that model good behaviors for those that you leave behind, your children, grandchildren, and such, your friends and families and partners. People should be held up by and lifted by the things you do that will be shared in your eulogy. So think about it as you go through life and make changes and decisions around who you want to be, not just now, but in the memory of those once you pass. Have an incredible week. Love the ones you're with. Hug the people you love. Make sure that you remember, today is today. It's the only day you got. Tomorrow hasn't happened yet, and yesterday's over. Make it the best day possible. Thanks for joining me. I love you all. You're the best audience in the world. Yonabud, 640, Toronto.